I'd like to welcome you to this Dean's Dialogue, the first of the year, and we appreciate you taking time to come out for this. It's a, it's a great privilege to be able to take time out to consider some of the larger questions of common concern that affect us all. We're at a university that has a great deal of resources, some of the intellectual elite of the nation and financial resources to back those intellectual elite. And some of the questions we're interested in, in looking at is we're in a place that is shaping the world. And to think about the questions of what kind of world do we want to shape? How can we do good in the world with our resources, both intellectual and otherwise? How can we use that privilege to make the world a better place? I'd like to introduce to you the two deans that we have here today. We have Dean Shepard. I know that neither needs any introduction, so I will give a very brief one so we can get on to their questions. Dean Shepard is chair of the Duke Corporate Education Board and also dean of Fuqua School of Business. And his relatively new deanship here has been greeted with uh, great enthusiasm and excitement. He is by no means new to Fuqua, though, as he was prior uh, to the Duke Corporate Education, uh, he was senior associate dean here at Fuqua. He's consulted with over 100 corporate corporations and has done exciting things in the field. Dean Sam Wells uh, has pursued both a parish ministry in the Church of England, especially with underprivileged communities, and is dean of Duke University Chapel. Uh, Dean Wells has, has the, uh, the motto for, for Duke Chapel is keeping the heart of the university, listening to the heart of God. And Dean Wells has done that in very careful ways in creating relationships across boundaries between Duke Chapel, the wider Duke community, and the wider Durham community and beyond. Now, during our time here today, we'll, we'll start off with uh, Dean Wells asking Dean Shepard some questions about what would you do if you had $100 million? A question that many of you have pondered, I'm sure, at, at length. <laughs> After we have uh, some question and answer between the deans, we'd like to open that up to you all. So as they talk, if something strikes you as interesting or if you have a question, if you could jot that down, and then we'll have time to ask your questions at the end of the dialogue. And now without further ado, I'd like to pass it over uh, to Dean Wells and Dean Shepard. Uh, well, Blair, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about maybe the earlier part of your life. Maybe tell us a story of when was the first time that you started to think about serious amounts of money? Not necessarily your own, but maybe about spending other people's. Or how, how to help other people spend other people's to keep it at a safe distance. Oh, as and, a child, and, I constantly thought about spending other people's yeah. money as a... <laughs> I actually grew up in Canada, and we actually engaged in a slightly different exercise as a kid. The, um, the Queen visited um, when I was pretty young. And so the exercise our, my siblings and I engaged in was, what would it be like to be a prince? And, and so it had more than just money associated with it. It was money and privilege. Um, and the conclusion we drew is it would be really terrible, actually. It's the conclusion we drew, because you, you're constricted in terms of the nature of your choices as a human being. Um, and so the first thought that I had about 
large sums of money was it would be a terrible loss of liberty. So you've, you've mentioned, in addition to money, you've mentioned a couple of other things there, freedom and privilege. Yes. And I guess one wants money because one thinks it will give you freedom, but if one has money, one is assumed by others then to have privilege. So, so straight away it comes with a curse, but, but also a, a, a key. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there's a much larger order of magnitude who's associated with Duke, which is Melinda Gates. She's actually a graduate of this school. She has a terrible life. Um, uh, the degrees of freedom they have as a family are really restricted. The continuous concern for security, the, um, the expectations of what you do, Right. The lack of privacy. The, and I think in a sense almost the most tragic is the near inability to raise a child in a way that you'd like to. Right. Um, and so I think the, so the scariest part about large sums of money um, is that actually the notion of freedom that comes with it just isn't true. Uh, and, and so it was, to me, I mean, I hadn't put these together until you'd asked the question, but the first musings of a young boy about what it meant to be a prince and the, and the reflections on the life Melinda has are quite consistent. But she is a, she is a, a queen. Oh, no question. No question. By American standards, she's more than a queen. If, yeah. if it could be higher, um, she would be. Yeah. yeah. So you, um, to, to be a business school dean, is to have had the opportunity to have been uh, a leading executive in business and to have stepped aside from that opportunity to teach others how to, how to be so. Yes. Is that correct? Can you talk us a little bit through how, how, yeah. one, how one would make those kinds of choices? Uh, it, well, I mean, the, the <laughs> I have two boys who will probably never forgive me for a couple of choices I've taken in life. Um, because they, we would have been well enough off that they would have been completely at liberty and, um, and not so well off that they would have had the constraints that a prince or Melinda had, so, um, or Melinda has. And it was easy. I mean, I, I, mean, I think the, I don't know, I mean, you're, you're not here long and um, if you're not here long, you should do those things you do well and you should try to achieve those things you're designed to achieve. And so I could have been a pretty good executive. I think I'm a really good educator. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was meant to do. To, 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 to specialize in the area to where you had particular gifts. Yeah. I wonder if I could... Um, maybe explain to you why I asked this big question about the 100 million. Um, and uh, some of you will have heard me talk about this before. A number of years ago, I found myself in a position where I was chairing an organization that had about $55 million to spend. And I found that one of the most challenging experiences uh, of my life because I had thought up to that point that um, a great many of the problems in the socially deprived area uh, that I was serving at the time uh, were due to lack of something. They were due to, to lack of resources 
and that most of those resources could be provided with more money. Um, but I actually found it, it was extremely difficult to spend this money um, because uh, we had to show that this money had, been, uh, had produced results, uh, which means we, had to, we couldn't just set up organizations and appoint people who, who didn't exist. Uh, and that means we had to give this money to organizations who already had a proven track record that they could deliver by the end of the year. And the reason why the area was poor was because there weren't any organizations like that. Yes. And so our biggest anxiety was we wouldn't spend the amount of money by the end of the year uh, because we didn't have enough trustworthy organizations to give it to. Yes. So that was the situation I find myself in. But of course, you're in a, a different situation, uh, but you've understood a number of these different, <laughs> different options throughout your career. Uh, and I wondered if I could bring you round to the the question at the top of the piece of paper uh, with that little introduction. Uh, perhaps, perhaps in an indirect way by saying, um, how, how often is money uh, on its own uh, a means to, to human good? Almost never. Um, so it, it, now there, there's, a, there's an actually a magnitude scale question that I think is worth contemplating, which is, as I was thinking about $100 million, the answer is you can't do very much with it. Um, but, but I want to recount a story. Um, we had Ted Turner as a graduation speaker and um, got to have dinner with him the night before. And uh, my wife was sitting on one side of Ted and I was sitting on the other. And, and as we were having a conversation with him, both of us kind of realized that he was permitted to ask questions that a normal human being simply doesn't contemplate, right? I mean, so for example, I mean, what he did was um, buy land in Montana and, uh, and reintroduce bison. Now, it turns out there were no natural enemies, so he had to cut the herd by 10%. By cutting the herd by 10%, he yielded more cash, which then bought more land. He now has more land in Wyoming and Montana than Yellowstone National Park, <laughs> right? What he's going to do with that, and he's reintroduced all native animals except those which take down bison, which are wolves. So he's essentially going to reintroduce the wolf and deed that land to, as a national forest, right? Now, it turns out I could never contemplate that as a construct, right? Um, mm. Uh, the second, and then that led to a conversation about, so, so what are you thinking about now? And he said, I'm going to eradicate polio from the face of the earth. And we said, what does it take to do that? And he said, well, actually, what you have to do is inoculate every kid for 10 years. And the problem is that war and poverty get in the way of those inoculations. So it's an $8 billion enterprise. And Bill and I are going to do it. Right? So as we were driving home, uh, Martha and I had this conversation, which is, what causes someone to think about that kind of issue, right? Turns out it's a lot more than $100 million, right? I mean, it, it, to, to, even, to even do things where money actually may be enough in that sense, mm -hmm. you're talking billions, not hundreds of millions. And so when you come back to hundreds of millions, which is actually a number which is hard for most people to fathom, but is actually quite fathomable, I actually think on its own it can't do anything. Um, so, so there's a really wonderful discussion we're having at Duke right now 
And the discussion basically goes something like the following. If you actually truly come to grips with what's, what is going to be required to introduce sufficient health in sub-Saharan Africa, it's a million managers that don't exist. There are people on the ground. They don't have the management capability. Right? Mm. Um, if you look at what the frustration is of most of the funding agencies in the United States, it's that they're giving money to entities that they don't think are going to actually deliver on the promise that the money was given against. Mm -hmm. And invariably, as I've been having conversations with uh, Mike Merson at Global Health Institute and um, uh, Greg Jones at the Divinity School, they come to a point that says, if only we had more people in situ who could manage, then the money could be well spent. So, so for me, there's an interesting imperative, which is how do we bring management talent, leadership talent, the lessons of a business school to the environment where people simply couldn't afford our tuition or don't want to be in the private sector to begin with. Um, it, I think if we could somehow solve that dilemma, then it would be much easier to spend $100 million wisely. Mm. So uh, when, when one talks about Ted Turner, one, one thinks, oh, uh, how, how does one become a person like that? Not just how does one climb a corporate ladder to that place, but how does one develop that kind of imagination? Yes, that's a good question. So, so, so two things. I actually think in this case, wealth was liberating, right? Now, he was a pretty crazy guy to begin with, for what it matters, if you've ever met him. Um, now, he had an advantage, which is he was born well-to-do, right? He invested wisely and did more with it than his father did, but, you know, it... Is that always an advantage? It, it's, 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 it's an advantage in the sense, so if you start with 100 million, it's a lot easier to get to a billion, right? Um, if you start with a million, it's hard to get to a billion, right? Um, if you start with a buck, it's really hard to get to a billion, right? So it's an advantage in the sense of it's a handicap in a race, but it has requisite disadvantages, right? So, so in a sense, there's, um, you know, all the data shows that second and third generation of wealthy people tend to uh, fritter it away. And they fritter away because they don't have reasons to achieve, right? So, why do the great soccer players come from the slums? It's because they aspire, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so I think it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. But he turned it to an advantage. And so one of the interesting questions is, what is it that caused him to have ambition that others wouldn't have? And what is it that caused him to actually take that liberty and, and, and be generative with it rather than what most people do? Is the, uh, what, I suppose what interests me about that entrepreneurial imagination is that, that the picture you've painted, $100 million is a drop in the ocean compared to what's required to eradicate polio globally. Uh, the kind of person, uh, well, if I were bringing my $100 million, which I'm sure you all understand I happen to have in my back pocket today, um, <laughs> Uh, in a sense, what that logic is saying, well, I need to bring that to the table, and I need to use that as an inducement to bring other people to the table. Uh, and once we, we all put in what we've got, then we've got, our, then we've got a significant possibility of a, of a major program. It just seems to me the kind of Ted Turner who's got the drive and the initiative uh, hasn't always got the patience and the collaborative skills 
to wait until that coalition has come round the table and to to coordinate that kind of coalition. That the, the, there's something about it which requires requires a kind of almost macho sense of banging on the table, coffee cups upset. We're going to get this done. It's a different sort of style, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, if you, I mean there's a, uh, two thoughts that that generates. First is, um, it's really fascinating if you talk to the Google Foundation, right? Because they're just obnoxious. I mean, this <laughs> can be so. You know, it feels like you're talking to Jean-Luc Picard, right? Which is, make it so, right? Um, it, and and it, it comes from sort of the, sort of the arrogance or pride or, or drive of, having actually taken on Microsoft and won, right? So, so there's a consequence that says we can eradicate, we can, and there's, a, there, and there's some hubris in that, but there's also some fascinating imagination in that, right? I think there's another piece to your point, though, which is the problem with having to create a coalition, so if you have 100, if you want to eradicate polio, and I'm not sure that's what I'd do, but, but, but it does go with that as a premise, um, by the time you've created the coalition, you may have lost the vision, right? So, so the dilemma is the following, which is that um, volunteer activities that require conscripting others to you also have with them the creation of multiple constituents, each of whom has a slightly different view of what it is you should do. So imagine it is $8 billion and you have to conscript and you get $100 million near and then you get $10 million near and you get $5 million. All of a sudden you have a thing that looks like a political party that's been in power too long. Mm. Um, and, it, and it loses the verve. So, so the dilemma of the $100 million is if you were to spend it wisely to help the world in the best you could, I'm not sure I'd aggregate it that way. I, I mean, mm. I, I think I'd... I think I'd go to capacity building. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a pretty interesting United Nations report that just came out that said um, we frittered our money away. And we frittered our money away because we tried to solve the problem. We didn't try to build the capacity to solve the problem. This is an old, you know the story well. Um, I could fish, teach you to fish or give mm -hmm. you fish. Right? And, um, but that's a non-trivial assertion, right? It's a non-trivial assertion on two grounds. The first is that helping someone who's proud build capability when you have that capability requires tremendous delicacy. And the second is that you're probably wrong. Not in the main, but in the context, right? So. But I'd rather do that than tackle the problem per se, right? Because the leverage is greater. I mean, now this is an educator speaking, right? So, so you know, I could, I could fix a problem myself or I could teach 450 MBAs a year to do it. I don't get to teach them anymore, but, but, but create a context in which they learn, way more leverage in the latter. And I think, in a sense, there's more joy in it, too. I mean, cause, because essentially the experience of other people's success is much greater than experiencing your own in a kind of narrow, egocentric way. So, so, so I'd build capacity, but it's a, it's a non-trivial task to do that. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the dilemma, it seems to me, because my, my fear about the model that, um, the Ted Turner model, goes out and 
and changes the world, or you know, obviously there's differences of scale there, is uh, that in a sense, if, if, you, if you plonk yourself in East Africa and you just see a whole bunch of Land Rovers with, with you know, white, all painted white with different competing development agencies, all of whom in a sense had their own dream uh, and all are trying uh, in some way to implement that dream and obviously more or less talking to each other about doing it. Um, and you, you sit there and you think, this can't be right. This, this can't be the way to do it. Uh, but, uh, but too much time you know, discussing means you, 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 know, you never leave the airport. And, and that's the, I guess that's the, that's the dilemma of, 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 of choosing between uh, whether you go for this entrepreneurial approach which you'd expect in a business school to be the well, the, 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 the favoured approach. We know how to run large organisations yeah, too. Yeah. Um, but yes, please keep going. Well, that, that, that's that, that's my anxiety. I think is that uh, it, it just seems narcissistic in the end. It's about leaving your personal imprint on the world. Uh, and I guess we we you know most of us don't have hundred million dollars to, to play with. But I guess many of us have have said. Is my desire to lead? Is my desire to make a difference? Uh, is my, my idea uh, to, to have the great obituary with a long list of accomplishments, is that really about service? Is that about seeing other people flourish? Or is this an idea for me to be just big? It's a great question. And, and, and I mean, I think Ted may be the bad example on this one, but, but, but let's stay with it for a minute. I think it's both. Right. I mean, um, so, so let's start with senior corporate executives for a minute. Most of the ones I've gotten to know personally are remarkable human beings. And, and they're accomplished. They're incredibly driven. And they care. But at some point there really is a much deeper purpose. Um, if you ever get to meet Rick Wagner, he is among the gentlest people you ever meet in your life. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's... He, Do you want to explain a bit about him? Yeah, too, Rick too. Wagner is the CEO of General Motors, um, a Duke alum, one of our best. Um, and, and, you know, he, he gets abuse piled on him like you can't believe because of the firm he runs. But he is carefully, thoughtfully, systematically, deliberately taking an organization that was on the precipice of complete failure and bringing it to something which Detroit can be proud of again, right? Now, you know, is there a certain amount of that that says someone's going to stand up and give a eulogy that I'll be proud of? Probably, but I don't think that's really it for him. Right. And most of the senior executives I've gotten to meet, that's not the case. Now let's separate that from sort of the big brash entrepreneur who has done it all on their own and blown through. Right? But there, I think it's almost more about accomplishing the idea than it is about their sort of residual reputation. I mean, I think for you know, I think for Ted, it was almost a puzzle. You know, suppose he could throw $6 billion at it, but he doesn't have that anymore because the market hurt him a bit. 
but, but, but it was almost a puzzle. So, so it wasn't Ted will be famous. It was how would you do this? Um, and, and so, when you meet them, it's not that simple. It's just, I mean, it's not pure ego. It's mm -hmm. not, I mean, he's an incredibly complicated human being. Rick Wagner is an incredibly complicated human being. And at both of their cores, they're gentle. Mm -hmm. Not true of everybody, but it's true of more than we grant. Now, uh, I'm right in thinking you have a background in psychology. Yes. And, and it seems to me the, the breakthrough comes in, in uh, having talked about motivation for a few moments. Uh, for me, a, a great sense of breakthrough comes when, when somebody presents a proposal uh, where, which seems to engage people's selfish motives in a cause for a wider social good. And then you get this incredible sense of liberation where you think, we don't have to be angst-ridden about why we're doing this anymore because we can channel both our good motives and our so-so motives and even one or two of our not-so-so motives uh, into something that actually uh, you know, uses all that energy positively. Yes. Could you reflect on, 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 on those kinds of initiatives or if you've, you've experienced and been involved with, with so, things of that kind. So, you know, I grew up in a Scottish family. That's a very Scottish representation of the world. <laughs> um, right. I mean, it feels Presbyterian, actually. Right. Um, and the, and um, Duke is Methodist, so I'm not sure how I put those two together. But, but um, um, so, so, let's take Duke Engage, right? Um, Duke Engage. The, the, the interesting thing about Duke Engage is that I suspect there's a ton of selfish motivation in that, right? So, so you know, one of them is that um, Duke has a momentum problem, right? And we need to overcome a momentum problem. Uh, part of it is um, what does it mean to be a differentiated university in the 21st century when the world is global and the visible inequities are much greater than they were before. And there, it, the inequities were always there, they're just much more visible because we have the availability of telecommunications to reveal it to people in the world. So there's now greater distress associated with it, right? Um, which I think is a good thing, by the way. And, and a whole series of selfish motives. But, and I don't know who came up with the idea, but it was a galvanizing construct to say, what would it look like if all of our kids actually had to construct a serious, socially positive plan for one summer, write it in a way that people were compelled by it, and then have to execute and explain whether they delivered or not. Right? Um, and isn't that actually helping them develop the leadership capabilities and the, the social awareness and the perspective on the world that you would just want an undergraduate in today's world to have? Right? And I think what's interesting is sort of two things about that. The first is it felt right at the moment. Right? So it's not so much that someone creates a galvanizing idea. It's a galvanizing idea at the moment where that idea is just the right time to occur. That's probably been mentioned a hundred times in the history of Duke and never picked up, right? Um, more than a hundred times, I would guess. 
And so it was timely. It met some selfish needs, both institutionally selfish and individually selfish needs. But it was just the right thing to do, right? And so, now what's also interesting in that, by the way, if I stay with that example, and I'll give you some others, but it, it's the one that was suggested to us, you asked a question, is there's a whole series of people that are jealous that they're not participating in that idea, right? So you should imagine what the graduate school deans say about, but this is just an undergraduate initiative. We keep saying, but what about us, right? Now, it's odd that we can't permit this thing of quite beauty to just be, and we are envious and covetous, and there's probably two or three things in the commandments that we're doing with this that we shouldn't be doing. Um, and, uh, and it's just striking. So, so, so two things about that. First is, three things. First is timing matters. Second is what makes it galvanizing is that it's significantly more than our selfish motives. There is a thing of beauty in the heart of it. And so it raises us up in a way that, that we aren't because, it, because we wouldn't be if it wasn't there. And third, the residual is actually darker than the selfish motives that are being, that are being achieved through it. Mm. It's the side effects that are almost unhappy. I think at that point, uh, I guess one can get anxious and say, can, uh, can human selfishness always be bureaucratically managed? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, uh, well, we in business school would say yes. Well, I was um, going to say, when I, come, <laughs> when I come into Fuqua, I think, gosh, isn't this a wonderful place which will put me out of business because... Uh, it has the bureaucratic ability to translate human selfishness into profit, and uh, you know it's it's a kind of, it, could, it could be seen as a kind of gospel, of, a rival gospel in that sense. Yeah, it it, um, it is actually, but but I mean, if you think about neoclassical economic models, it is a rival gospel. It has elements of theology about it that are kind of scary, by the way, because mm. some of the conclusions you draw from it are not terribly happy. Mm. Um, but I mean, so we just had this conference for three days. It was a really interesting conference. We brought together people from this, from athletics, from the arts, from business to talk about what does it mean to lead in the 21st century. Right. The theme was creating a world-class team, kind of a trite business phraseology on an important problem. Um, and and what was striking is how many people said, without purpose, they will not come. So, it, to me, the important point is, if it was simply channeling selfishness, it wouldn't work. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and it was, I mean, it was really, it was amazing. So, so, person after person after person, if you dug, there was a deep set of values driving why they did what they did. And, and they weren't fake. But how then, do you, how, do, how then do you, how then do you stop purpose becoming a commodity? That... Uh, now, people people sit around and think, thing? well, how are, we, how are we going to make money out of this? Well, okay, we've got everything on the balance sheet here. We've got the complete business plan. Now, okay, who's the purpose expert? Um, can we bring someone in to give a bit of purpose? Because that's the one ingredient we need. And then yeah, we'll that's have a great question. That's a great question. So, so there's a piece of uh, there's an emergent set of ideas that basically says we've moved from uh, you know there's a commodity economy, there's a goods economy, there's a service economy. We're now in the experience economy. Right? Disneyland is the ultimate exemplar of the experience economy, where essentially people are paying 
we, we have all our good needs met so that we actually go a step beyond that. And so the way to think of this is you could buy, you could buy beans, you could buy coffee in a grocery store, you could buy a cup of coffee at a restaurant, or you could go to Starbucks. And by going to Starbucks, it's actually the experience you're buying. You're no longer just buying the coffee, right? And that actually, that's an economic offering that's significantly higher than the rest. The interesting consequence of that emergent literature is that the immediate next literature is authenticity, right? And so I think the answer to the question is people aren't that stupid. The good news is they aren't that stupid and that we actually test authenticity. And if over time it isn't genuine, it isn't grounded in something fundamental, it isn't deeply thought, it will fail. So, so I was struck uh, by John Allison as an example, the CEO of BB&T. I told you this as we were coming up. Um, he has an incredibly articulate delineation of the values that undergird BB&T. And um, he's read philosophy wisely, widely. He quotes many, many, many different traditions. And he integrates them in a way that says, it turns out if we behave this way, we will be a successful bank, and you will be a significantly happier, more accomplished human being. And when you listen to that story, in his context, he's right. He's authentic. Right? And, and so for someone to come along and then try to commoditize that, it would lose all of its essential ingredient because he can actually write a PhD thesis, probably five on the set of 10 values. And the amount of thought and reflection and meaning that's been put in it is astounding, right? Now, the good news is when people listen to him, they see authenticity. When they listen to someone who articulates five core values and they can't remember the fifth, um, and they can't show how it's a system, and they can't take those and, um, and tell you a story in, in every part of the business and how it connects to those values. They see a fake. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while, but there, there's a wonderful piece of research. That basically, it, it's not exactly related to this issue, but it makes the same point, which is um, if you take a look at whether or not it's in your self-interest to cheat in a malignant regime, Right, so uh, in, in certain parts of Eastern Europe, just after the wall fell, it got really corrupt, and in certain parts of Africa, right? It turns out if you, if you view it over a two or three year horizon, the answer is you're better to be corrupt. If you look over 20 years, those who act with integrity, those who tell the truth, those for whom a deal is a deal, those who do not pay the government, thrive. The reason is you can't last through a regime. As soon as the regime changes, you're out of office because the next regime comes and goes after the next set of people who they want to corrupt, right? And so it's not unlike this issue of authenticity. You can get away with it for a while, but not for very long. Um, I, I guess the, the anxiety now at the back of my mind is <clears throat> we've We've, in a sense, been talking about two social models for the, the transformation of, uh, of money into, into human good. We, we've talked about businesses as, yeah. as 
as almost large families that take the good and the bad and, 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 and turn out uh, consequence yes. and, and value. Um, and we've talked about educational institutions, most notably the greatest of all, the Fuqua School of Business. <laughs> um, Thank you for that. Uh, and uh, now remember, authenticity is authentic. Oh, yeah. About. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just keep forgetting that part. Yeah. Um, uh, what my anxiety about about uh, being a newcomer to this culture is, I see see both of those as being. If we take General Motors and, and then we take uh, Duke University, um, they're both citadels of different kinds. And if you can get into this, obviously General Motors is struggling with this now, but if you can get into that, then your benefits package, your retirement, the whole wraparound is with you. And if you can get into the Fuqua School of Business, then of course it's not guaranteed. You've got to pass your exams. You, you've got to make the most of the contacts that that gives you. But, but Broadly speaking, you can expect that you've got a you've got a ticket to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that will that will open doors for you for the rest of your life. But there are people, you know, not not two miles from where we're sitting, who who don't have access to either of those kinds of umbrellas. Um, and and it's 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 I, I think I still struggle with how hundred million dollars or. Uh, or anything can actually change things for them. So, so it's a great question. Um, two, two pieces, right? The first is, um, I think it's a mistake to remove excellence to create sense of equality because um, humanity stops aspiring, right? So, so. Um, you know, I think, I think um, if, if you take the business piece first and then come to the educational because it's slightly more problematic for me. Um, businesses serve a function of uh, engaging in commerce to create things we want. If we didn't want them, they wouldn't exist. Now, we, they also do some nasty things like create wants that we shouldn't have had in the first place, but, but set that aside. Um, and the best run ones are actually places in which people can actualize sense of self-esteem and purpose and success in ways that are really fairly remarkable. So the best of the consulting firms, people feel very good about who they are in those businesses. And um, third, they create a kind of uh, social understanding and social contract that causes the things around them to actually lift up, right? And so I think in general, they're pretty good things. The problem is you, you have competing principles of justice, right? And for me, there's three. One is those who work harder, those who perform better should be recognized. Now, the reason you need that, if you take that away, accomplishment disappears. Now, as soon as you permit that, you violated one of the two other principles of justice, right? But, but if you take that one away, you harm aspiration. And for humanity not to aspire is a bad thing. So, now we get the second principle of justice, which is people are people and therefore in some fundamental, fundamental sense we should be treated the same. 
there's a direct competition between those two principles, right? Now, actually, it turns out, and then the third is those in need should be taken care of first, right? And, and I think the danger comes when you permit any one of those to dominate to the exclusion of the others. So what happened in Russia in the late 20th century, middle and late 20th century, is, is they enforced a concept of absolute equality, which actually destroyed aspiration, which caused the things that markets do or aspirational events do to be replaced by totalitarian regime. I think at the end, at the start of the 21st century in the United States, we're at risk of taking the notion of equity or, or compensation for those who perform best and taking it to the extreme and excluding the others. For me, a great society finds some way of balancing all three, as do great organizations, by the way. You cannot be a sustainably great organization without finding a way of balancing all three of those. So if you allow too much distance to exist between a CEO's pay and an employee's pay, the firm will fail because the employee will stop identifying with the organization the CEO is leading. If you allow people who accomplish more, if you force them to be paid the same, the firm will fail because those who are accomplished will go somewhere else. If you don't take care of those who need, you lose sense of civility or community that causes the rest of us to care about the other and so we'll pursue self-interest to the exclusion. Right? So, so, so I think at your question is how do you reconcile those three principles of justice? Now here's the problem. You have those acting within a system like General Motors or Duke, and I think Duke is pretty good at reconciling those three within the system, but then that system exists in a larger system and it may not be calibrated well with a larger system, right? It seems to me though it is a real mistake to undo aspiration to fix the other, right? So in India, we have a partner in India. Um, I am Ahmedabad. It's a remarkable institution. They select one in 320 students. And it is the case that if you go to I am Ahmedabad, you will be successful in India. You just have to go and you'll be successful, right? because the people you interact with are amazing and the number of offers you get when you graduate are astounding. And actually they're getting offers where the students are getting offers 10 times to 12 times higher than the faculty are getting paid. You will succeed. The government has said you will take the truly disadvantaged and you'll, you will create slots for the truly disadvantaged in I am Omnibond. The deputy director or the director of that institution no longer has a job because he debated that argument. He, he said, you're going to destroy the aspiration that's going to lift India up. And what we need to do is actually go in where the thing is truly broken, which is in grades five, six, and seven. That if, 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 if we can't get the truly disadvantaged to actually get over the hump of recognizing they can get to high school and through high school they can go to college and that they don't, they can both take care of feeding their family plus go to school at the same time, you're solving the problem at the wrong point in time. I'd say the same thing. 
don't stop Duke from being Duke, but ask Duke to say, how can we act in our own community and in the world at large to remove the inequities that happened earlier so that kids never do have a dream? One last thought, sorry. Alan Schwartz told this astounding story the other day that it was just striking to me. I hadn't heard this data. Turns out that it's six. No matter where you live in the United States, you have the same aspirations and the same expectations. They all want to be doctors or fire people, right? And they all think they will. At 10, they all have the same aspiration, but those who live in a well-to-do world believe they'll achieve it. Those who live in a disadvantaged world say, I'm going to be an orderly. I'm going to be, I'm going to be an orderly. I want to be a doctor, but I'm going to be an orderly. It's the period between 5 and 10 we have to worry about. Um, I'm going to uh, invite you to ask some questions, and I'm going to wait about 60 seconds to give you a chance to tell the person next to you what that question was going to be, and allow them to say, that is a fantastic question, that's the most outstanding question I've ever heard someone utter, and, and, and that'll make you think, yeah, actually, I really want to put my hand up and, 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 and ask it. So, so check with the person next to you that you really have got the most outstanding question anyone's ever, ever suggested, and then... 30 seconds time, we're going to start taking some questions.